You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, your host, Ben Eagle. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you are listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 187 of the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. And yes, that was new music that you heard. I fancied a bit of a change um, again. So we've got a new logo and we've got some new music, but it is still the same old format. Today, I am heading to West Wales to speak to the only organic duck egg producer in the country, Josh Haynecker, who farms at Park Carrig in Pembrokeshire. Josh and his wife, Abby, have 10 acres on which they keep 500 free-range organic ducks and a small flock of sheep, as well as a market garden. And they've also planted an orchard of blueberries. Uh, which uh, we'll hear a little bit more about today. Uh, their duck breeds include Kaki Campbells, Dark Campbells, and the rare Welsh Harlequin. I know about the first one. I don't know anything about the other two. Um, their eggs are sold through Abel and Cole and local organic wholesalers. Josh is South African by birth, but moved to London to work in sales and project management, which is where he and Abby met. In 2017, they sold their London flat and quit their jobs to go farming. Abby had worked as a graphic designer and illustrator. Trying to make a living on just 10 acres, though, has proven immensely difficult. And the farm has recently struggled um, to turn a profit. Josh made a really hard-hitting film on YouTube called How to Fail at Farming, which I highly recommend you watch. Um, you can find their YouTube channel by searching for Park Carrig. Uh, they launched a crowdfunding campaign to keep them in business this winter, outlining their vision for the farm on another YouTube film. And this vision included moving away from soy and their duck feed and building a compost business. Uh, the crowdfunder made £6,000 in just three days with donations from the UK and abroad, including Spain, Switzerland, the US, Puerto Rico, Indonesia and South Africa, which in itself meant that Josh and Abby would see it through the winter. By Christmas, when they closed the campaign, donations sat at £8,500. Along with all other poultry farmers across the country, Josh and Abby's ducks have been in isolation due to avian flu throughout the winter. And by the sounds of his latest YouTube film, he and Abby have also been pretty ill this winter as well. Josh, that's enough from me. Welcome to Meet the Farmers. Um, I hope that you and Abby are now slightly better. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for the intro. Um, and yeah, we are both feeling much better. Um, our little one has just caught literally as of yesterday, just caught another bug and we are just bracing <laughs> ourselves hoping that this one we don't pick up too but yeah we're feeling better thanks and um i am so looking forward to spring like yeah i bet you are super excited about spring and summer to be honest yeah. now, there is well, there's a lot in your story um and normally i'd start by asking you to tell me about where you are um tell me about pembership but I think that to understand your story, I think that listeners need to hear the context going all the way back. So I actually want to start asking really about you, I suppose, first of all, because as well as your farming story, this is the story of how a South African project manager and a graphic designer illustrator chose a life in farming. Um, and it's also a story of how difficult um, farming a farming life can be at times so take me back to south africa actually and tell me how you ended up in london first of all yeah cool uh so actually we i met abby in um it was a 2004 uh you know after i finished school school i decided instead of going to uni i decided to go and do a little bit of working in london and get a bit of experience and i met abby the very first day I arrived there, uh, we spent some time together in London and then I managed to convince Abby to come back with me to South Africa. Okay. Uh, we spent a number of years there and she actually studied graphic design in South in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, I, I was also studying um, that I then finally decided to go and do sales and marketing, um, study that in Cape Town. Um, and then we got married and... Uh, decided to go back to London 
to go and have a go at uh, the big city and the bright lights. And um, so that was in, uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, I arrived in London with essentially no real work experience. I, I'd, I'd, I had been working part-time, but not since I left uh, uni. And I arrived in 2000, end of 2008, and started looking for a job in 2009. So that was right in the middle of the, um, you know, the, wow. the financial crisis. Yeah. And, you know, I had no contacts. I had no previous solid work experience. Uh, I also didn't really have um, a degree or anything that was recognized in the UK as like an official, you know, certification. So we actually, I, I ended up getting an internship at a company that specialized in building software for mobile phones. Um, but at that time, everybody was still using Blackberries and um, the iPhone was just a toy. Yeah. I remember and, that actually. Yeah, that was what people said. The iPhone was just a toy. And I had a, the first Android phone that was a little slidey uppy thing with a, mm -hmm. key, a physical keyboard on it. Yep. And uh, yeah, I joined this company at the time. Uh, they're called Tiger Spike. Um, as an intern, it was unpaid for a little while. And uh, we were living off very little. But I really enjoyed working for that company. Really great bunch of people. And of course, at that time, then it was just the right time because then things just absolutely took off. Like the iPhone suddenly just exploded in popularity. And people went from literally, I mean, if you think about how crazy it is, people went from literally like being absolutely evangelical about their Blackberries, you know, like they would never move yeah. away from Blackberries. It went from that to being, you know, within the next, I don't know how long it took, but uh, five years, I guess, Blackberry and Nokia folded. Yeah. You know, those companies no longer exist, which is just insane. Um so yeah, there was so much disruption in that industry at the time, and it was just a perfect time to join a company like that. So that's what I was doing in London. Abby was um, doing graphic design as a freelancer, and then eventually she got a little studio and she started uh, focusing on her own artwork and illustration, and she got into sort of woodblock printing and was doing some great projects, um, had a little exhibition in Brixton at one point, uh, and we were living in Peckham. I love Peckham and we really enjoyed our time in Peckham, South London, but it did get to the point after, I think it was about eight years in London where we started getting really itchy, like sitting in an office. Actually for the last couple of years that I was in London, I was working from home and consulting and, um, you know, I was working by myself at home. And interestingly, I think I started, I got a taste of what everyone sort of felt during COVID, you know, at that time, okay. go from a really like vibrant team of people in an office in, in central London, working on some really exciting stuff to then working by myself at home behind a desk and not having yeah. that sort of... That was weirdly quite a good transition into, into farming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it was part, part of what motivated us to get out of London. Um, but we had always wanted to, we always joked and dreamed about the fact that we were going to get really wealthy one day and retire and buy a farm. And that was kind of a running joke that we had for a while. But then eventually as we started like examining our lives and what we really wanted out of life, you know, we wanted to focus a lot more on health. We wanted to be more um, physical and do more physical work. We actually, one of the motivating things for getting into farming, believe it or not, was that we bought a little one-bedroom flat in Peckham and we had this massive long garden because it was one of those terraced houses, but we actually had sole access to the garden at the, at the bottom. And it was a huge garden and it was a complete wreck when we bought the place. And we just got stuck into renovating that garden and we loved it so much. Those things, looking for health, more physical work, you know, getting involved in garden design, yep. all that stuff sort of got us down the rabbit hole of permaculture and, okay. you know, garden design and then eventually farming. And so, yeah, we started seriously talking about, well, actually, instead of waiting to be old and 
you know, no longer physically able to do the stuff before we want to like buy our big farm. Why don't we like, what if we just started farming now? Like what if we became farmers and, okay. and, and it all went from there basically. So when you actively looking for, for farmland, uh, uh, so when you were there, how long did it take to actually take the leap and say, yeah, we're moving to Wales now? Yeah, it happened quite quick. So, well, we took a trip to South Africa because, uh, you know, the first, well, the first problem we had was, although we owned this little one bedroom flat in Peckham, which we planned to sell and then use that capital to then go and buy some land, that was obviously not going to be nearly enough in the UK to to buy a, a piece of land with a house on it. So we were originally looking to go back to South Africa and farm there. Um, and we took a trip back home, back to Cape Town, and we drove around and we looked at some land and we looked at prices. And, um, you know, it's much cheaper. You can get a lot more for your money, um, especially when you're converting pounds to, to rands. Um, but there was the issue of farm crime. And right. I came across the statistic, which was that you're twice as likely to be murdered as a white farmer in South Africa as um, as a police officer in South Africa. And when I read that, I was like, wow, you know, wow. the statistics for police officers in South Africa are brutal. And it's probably one of it's up there with probably one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. So if I would be twice as likely to be murdered as a white farmer, then I, I was like, I can't, I can't justify taking Abby and potentially having a family in, in that situation. And then we started looking at Spain um, because, you know, land is cheaper there. And, and that was actually the plan. So we actually sold our flat in London. We bought a camper van. The plan was to drive around the UK uh, yeah. on a road trip and just have a, you know, enjoy, enjoy the UK a bit. And then the plan was to carry on into basically Europe and then move through France and get to Spain. Okay. And then and, we and gonna... some, somehow you ended up in Pembrokeshire, which isn't anywhere near on the way to Spain. Yeah. Um, and wow, <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad we did this for, for, for a number of reasons. But the reason, the primary reason we didn't even leave the UK was because literally um it was about a week after we had locked up the flat handed over the keys got our camper van gotten out of london put our stuff in storage and we were on the road and we were headed up to scotland to go and see family because i have family in um in edinburgh by the way i'm my dad is south african my mother is scottish so uh, i have okay ancestry which is um, how I got into the UK originally. And uh, so we went up to, we were on our way up to Scotland to go and see some uh, family. And about a week into our journey, Abby's legs started going numb. And it was super weird. Like she'd, she started off like bumping her head a lot, just being really clumsy and doing odd stuff. And we were kind of like, oh, it's weird getting in and out of a camper van. That must be new or something. And then her legs started going numb. And we were like, oh, this is weird. And we ended up seeing uh, a specialist in Edinburgh and got an unofficial diagnosis at that point because we were mobile and, mm. and we got an unofficial diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Oh, my goodness. Abby had an MRI. And, uh, yeah, that was a real shock for us. Like, Yeah, that must be. Yeah, so we were tough. like super excited about this dream to go and start farming and we had all this like energy to like get out there and get started and and then we got that diagnosis and obviously you know the out the outlook for someone with ms is is mixed you know some people have um quite healthy lives some people end up in wheelchairs and it's just not you just don't know what's going to happen and i was like wow so we've committed to this life of going to become farmers now and potentially you know abby might not physically be able to do it so that life, really life us. is a funny road yeah throws all sorts of curveballs at you and um and and so then we decided you know what like going to spain that's not such a great idea we want to be closer to family we want to be closer to the nhs we 
you know, we need to just sort of temper things a little bit here and not get too excited. So we decided we'd stay in the UK, but then we're left with the problem of, well, how do we afford to actually buy a farm if we've just sold our one bedroom flat in London, which, you know, we property in London is valuable, but it wasn't enough for us to buy a house on a piece of farmland. Yes. Um, you know, after paying back our mortgage and everything. So we ended up going down this rabbit hole and we were originally actually going to go and do a one planet development in Wales, uh, which is an interesting policy that exists in Wales and Wales only. I was say, t- tell us more about that. I've, I haven't come across that. Yeah. So the one planet development is essentially, it's a Welsh policy that acknowledges the idea that, you know, in First world countries, we are living, you know, we the way that we live means that if everyone in the world had to live that way, you would need, I can't remember, in the US and the UK, I think you would need like five planet Earths. You know, if everybody in the world was going to live like the US and, and yeah. the UK. And so the idea behind the one planet policy is we all need to live within our sort of fair share um, and we all need to live as if we've got one planet. For the first time since World War II, I think when they introduced the Town and Country Planning Act, which separates farmland from residential land, uh, for the first time since then, they've introduced this policy which says you would get permission to build a residential home on agricultural land as long as you went completely off-grid, you managed your own uh, waste, you grew 70% of your own food. Yeah, you need to... You like need 70%. To yeah, you have to generate your own energy, manage your own waste, and you have to grow 70% of your own food, and you have to set up a land-based business. Okay. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm pausing that because I'm, I'm just... I'm, doing, I'm intrigued on this. How do they know that um, that you're not going over the 70%? Or they, monitor, 70%? they monitor you, theoretically, okay. and you have to put in a report every year. So you have to put in a big application for your planning commission. Once you get your planning commission, you can go ahead with the project. And then you've got five years to actually achieve the objectives you've set up in your plan. And theoretically, if within five years you're not off-grid and you're not low impact and you're not um, and you're they they actually calculate your carbon footprint. And if you haven't met those objectives within five years, theoretically, they can then take away uh, your permission. Wow. And, and, and yeah, you do annual reporting every year. So it's kind of like an accounting, you know, tax return every year, but with carb- carbon, basically. You know, that meant that we could actually go and buy agricultural land at what is relatively cheap prices um, compared to if we were going to buy land with a house on it. And we could go about this planning application and build a home on there. And actually, you know, now what I know now is that it doesn't really work out any cheaper because by the time, <laughs> you know, by the time you've tried to set up a farm and a business and built a home, yeah, you know, uh, realistic, of course there are people out there who have managed to do it all for very cheap. Um, but building a home, a modern home that's really going to last and not require a lot of faffing around. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways to build a home. And that was quite in, like inspiring, actually, when we came on this journey. We were like, do you know what? You, it is possible for you to build your own home, you know. We came to Wales with this plan. We were very keen. You know, we, the first place we looked at, 10 acres, we bought. Uh, it, the it's first a, place? First place we looked wow. at. We found it on Facebook, through Facebook, locally here. People advertised it on Facebook. We found it. We bought it. It was the first place we looked at. It did tick a lot of boxes. In hindsight, I don't regret the purchase at all. Yeah. It was it was a good purchase. And we started trying to figure out, okay, how we what are we going to do here? Started looking at writing our application. And we, we were looking around and seeing at how much people were really struggling. And we ended up deciding because an opportunity popped up and there was an old welsh cottage about literally about four minutes walk from the fields that we purchased um it was it was derelict it had been empty for two years um and so it was not mortgageable and it was going to go on auction and uh it came up for a very uh, low sum of money and we're like we looked at that and we thought you know what 
we'd rather sort of live a bit rough in this place yeah. than try and build a home from scratch. And so we just decided, you know, what, we're going to set up the farm business on the fields and we're going to live in, uh, in, in, the, in the cottage down the road. And um, that was a good decision um, because our focus really, like our real goal was to become farm. We wanted to farm, we wanted to produce food. And, you know, our primary goal was to be food producers. And we weren't really that keen on, you know, the classic thing when you move out to the countryside and you get a bit of land, you set up a B&B, a guest house, you start renting it out. That is the most sort of surefire way to like actually earn an income. But that wasn't what we were coming for. We really wanted to farm and we wanted to farm regeneratively. You know, initial, our initial interests and inspiration were around permaculture. And that sort of over time morphed into more regenerative agriculture just because the permaculture world tends to be a lot less commercially focused and regenerative agriculture was really uh, looking at at food production from a commercial point of view and that and sort of that's where we that's where our interests were so 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 yeah we wanted to uh we wanted to farm specifically and and, and this setup allowed us to concentrate on the farming bit and not have to be distracted with the building the house bit and yeah. okay so so why ducks did you know did you know a thing about ducks before you started absolutely nothing i mean like <laughs> literally you know we arrived there we had these 10 acres looking at 10 acres was staring at the 10 acres and thinking what on earth are we going to do is yeah so I, I i love the fact because i didn't know that the land came before the business plan it, I, I just naturally yes. assumed that it would have gone the other way around but yeah Yes, and I don't recommend people do it this way. Like, <laughs> you know, we we were really um, naive and we were really gung ho and full of excitement and youth and energy, <laughs> and we just wanted to get started and we didn't want to waste any time. So we just went after it, and we didn't actually, you know, we had seen, we'd read books, we had seen things, we'd watched all the YouTube videos, we'd done all that stuff, but we didn't know exactly what our business plan was going to be. We just knew. We were going to go and do it, whatever it was. Um, I don't rec. I, I really don't recommend people do it that way around. Um, uh, but yeah, when we were looking at those 10, 10 blank acres of pasture, we were like, "What are we going to do here?" You know, it had been used to graze sheep and cows, you know, for generations before. But clearly, that wasn't going to be. We weren't going to earn a living doing that on ten acres. But why ducks? Well, you know, my background being sales and marketing. I could see that ducks were a niche product that weren't very common uh, or duck eggs, shall I say, were a niche product that weren't very common. They weren't being done organically at the time. There were, there was one other producer doing it organically at the time, um, but there were very few. Um, and that from a commercial point of view, that was one of the reasons we decided. The other reason is that like, they're really well suited to whales compared to chickens, you know, like, they are wearing essentially a waterproof sleeping bag um, and they're super warm and super like they love the rain, they love the wet. Um, yeah, and yeah. so they just felt Fine a lot more appropriate for the climate. Yeah. So um, plus they're just incredibly um, beautiful characters. I just love the way they waddle around and they're just awesome. We, we really, we got a handful of, we got seven ducks as a little experiment and we just sort of fell in love with them and we we're like, yeah, this is, this is really cool. Plus the whole permaculture world is all about ducks. I mean, ducks are any uh, okay. farm tends to have a duck in it. So right. when, when we looked around and we thought, why is no one doing ducks? Like, you know, it's in all the garden, every, all, all the permaculture projects seem to have, you know, at least a couple ducks. Why is no one doing it commercially? And, Maybe we'll get onto this later. Yeah, but... I, I was going to say because actually I want to tackle that now because yeah. yeah, we mentioned that word commercial, and then whenever and I, I've seen this with other people with with uh, really specific things where I mean you are, which is a which is a, a, a great thing to say. You are the only, or say it again, the only organic duck egg producer in the country. So, but why is that? Yeah. <laughs> again, just purely focusing on the commercial aspects again, because again, you, uh, as we know, you have been you have been struggling as well recently. So, I'm I'm bang on with you that if you have a niche, then yeah. it has to in some way be a good thing. So, yeah. what is that? What is the answer to that question? Do you think? 
there's a number of reasons and I'm learning all the time. Like, um, I think that chickens are easier, easier to um, do in a large scale um, commercially. Like there's a number of reasons why they're easier to do on an industrial scale. And they've, they've been bred over the years to be incredibly productive. So the genetics are there. It's really easy to pick up some incredibly productive chickens. Um, the genetics are there and available. The eggs, um, one of the m- biggest downsides of keeping ducks for eggs commercially is that they, um, they are ground nesting birds. So they lay on the ground and they will not go and ra- lay in a raised up nest box. Okay. When you're doing something at scale and when you're trying to put together a nice product that, that people can, that you can be proud of and that people like to look at and eat, it, it becomes difficult because you have to try and keep those eggs clean because they are being laid on the ground. Ducks also want to bury the eggs. So they, they, their instinct is to literally make a bowl in the ground and then lay the eggs in there and cover it up from predators. So that, so cleanliness of eggs means there's more labor and you know, we've worked so hard to set up our system so that our eggs are clean or as clean as you can expect in the house when we collect them. And that's fine. But because they're white, uh, once you put them in a box, even though they are good, they are clean enough, they, the dirt just shows up. And when you open that box of eggs and you just see white eggs, which have dirt on it it's just you can't really get around it you have to wash them the other problem with ducks is because of the fact that they lay on the ground uh, it means you've got to chuck a lot more litter and bedding at them um, because you're trying to keep those eggs clean the fact that we're trying to keep the eggs clean means we are throwing tons of bedding material into that duck house in order to make sure the eggs stay clean it's a cost not only in the material we have to buy in but in the labor and the time and spreading that material and then in the labor and the time in actually mucking out the house you know so i mean like our ducks are producing like immense levels of litter so those i think are some of the primary reasons why um there are some benefits to ducks though like yeah i was gonna say i, w- I was just gonna say yeah let's let's go on the positives apart from the facts yet that Dare I say, I mean, listeners, if you haven't tr- actually tried a duck egg before, do, because yeah. they are just delicious. They really are. Yeah, w- w- one other thing to just say on the on the downside is, the other thing is, ducks eat a much larger quantity of feed compared to a chicken. They also lay a larger egg. So you do get increased egg, but you also have to feed them more. So I think just overall, when okay. you add that up across a huge flock, you know, it makes a very big difference. Like I think a chicken will eat 120, 30 grams of feed a day. A duck will eat like 150 to 200 grams of feed a day. Lying. So you add that up over 20,000 and it gets uh, immense. So, but on the other hand, duck eggs, beautiful, awesome product, more nutritious than chicken eggs bigger than chicken eggs. It is a bit of a Marmite um, product. Like some people just don't like the texture and the flavor. Um, I think that's mostly because they're just used to chicken eggs. And yeah. so um, so that's probably primarily the reason. But once you get hooked on duck eggs, it is kind of hard to go back to chicken eggs. The other benefit with ducks is apart from their incredible um, hardiness, really hardy, really hardy in terms of being weatherproof, um, also like, way less diseases and problems with uh ducks compared to chickens you don't have to worry about things like red mites with ducks yeah i'm, I'm very conscious that we're talking a lot of negative here but there, there are there are lots of positives in this story as well which which we'll get yeah. on to but we're, we're going to dive into a bit of a bit of a tougher time now as well last year you did yeah. have a very tough time i mean i remember when well, we, we first met at uh just farmers workshop um last year um yeah. And which is where I got to know a little bit about your story. But last year was very tough. Uh, take us through the process of, uh, I suppose, how these challenges developed and um, how you got to this, got to the stage of making the How to Fail at Farming video. Okay, so when we did come on this journey, we were, I did say I was naive about um everything farming related but i did realize that farming is essentially a really difficult industry to come into um i didn't i don't think i realized the extent to which my lack of experience 
um, was going to be a real challenge. So, you know, we've been doing this now for seven years and uh, we've had to learn a lot. Uh, it's taken a long time for us to sort of decide exactly what we're doing, what we're focusing on. Uh, and so a large part of our failure really is to do with the fact that we are inexperienced and that we've made a lot of mistakes along the way. And in the first part one of How to Fail at Farming, you know, I, I, I highlighted that, that that we have made a lot of mistakes. Um, and the amount of money that you need to, to throw at a farm when it's 10 acres of literally grass and you have no infrastructure and you want to do poultry, which require infrastructure. Yeah. We've poured a lot of money into it. We've taken out, um, you know, first we started by spending all of our savings that we had from our sale of our flat in London. Then we started by, then we took out an, a small loan and then we took out another small loan. Because we had a good signal from the market, you know, we were get we had a customer that was like, we love your eggs. We love your product. Our customers love, our, love your eggs. We want more. We'll take as much as you can basically provide us. So, we started scaling up. We got ourselves a feed bin. We got ourselves a you know a nice uh, big duck house. We had already had a bit of experience with avian flu, where we had to keep the birds in over a few winters. So we were like, do you know what? When we yep. do our new house, we're gonna have a lot more space. So we were scaling up, but the business was not yet profitable. I mean, we were very much still pouring investment in and learning. Of course. Uh, and then. Um, the real nail in the coffin for us was a combination of two things. One was feed price inflation linked to Ukraine and the, all the geopolitical stuff. So feed prices shot up like 50% or whatever it was, massive feed um, increases. And we were, you know, we were so busy focusing on farming and getting yeah, things on the day to day. Yeah. The day to day, you know, like I didn't, I should have increased my prices quicker than I did. I was worried because our prices were already really premium because we are small scale and uh, it, it is expensive to produce duck eggs. So our prices were already premium, which was making me hesitant to sort of, I, I was concerned about increasing prices too much. Uh, I must give, you know, we had a little bit of resistance in the, in the beginning from our retailer as to whether or not they would um you know accept price increases but i think hats off to them they very quickly you know realized the situation the severity of the situation um but basically the feed prices rocketed and we we didn't increase those feed prices fast enough to keep up with the feed price um inflation uh and so that was one half of the problem the other half of the problem was that we are doing something uh, quite different with our flock in terms of the fact that we're trying to keep our ducks for multiple seasons. So we're not keeping our birds for a single 12-month period and then culling them or, or selling them on. We're actually allowing them to molt, change their feathers, and then come back into lay for a second season. And that that trying to do that for it's very uncommon to do that it, it turns out that it's actually more common with the very few duck producers in the world than i realized um duck producers seem to do that more often than chicken producers but basically there's not that much information on how to really do that properly and it, it's a real science and it's a bit like trying to read tea leaves when you don't know what you're doing because you're you're basically expecting you're trying to get your your whole flock to at the same time molt change the feathers and then come back into lay and trying to actually get them all to cooperate with you and do it at the right time incredibly difficult yeah. so we were trying to do that at the same time as the feed price inflation and what that meant was that for a period our lay rate was massively reduced so we were feeding like 600 birds and we were getting like, you know, nowhere near the lay rates that we needed. So that combination um, was, was a killer, really, you know, really bad combination for a poultry business. And so that's what I mean when I say we've made a lot of mistakes. You know, we actually, I'm still, by the way, I'm still planning on, on keeping our ducks for multiple seasons. We're still going to be malting them we're still going to have that routine but i'm learning now a lot more about the intricate details of how to do that properly 
um, and how to time it correctly and make sure that your production is, you know exactly when, when you are and aren't going to have eggs. And, but I think that overall, you know, the, 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 feed, the feed price was literally, it was like every time I was calling for another load, it was just a massive jump in, in, in the price and of, of feed. So that all of those things combined meant that we, the business just ran into cash flow problems. And I just, it, it, it got to the point where I was like, I don't think we're going to have enough money. We, we actually, we didn't have enough money to buy our next load of, of, of feed. Um, and I could see, you know, you can see in the feed bin, the, 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 the feed dropping and I could see, okay, this is, this is it now. I mean, we've been through a number of periods over the last seven years where we thought, oh, things are looking so dodgy. Are we going to make it? Are we not? Yeah. But this got to a point where, you know, I, I, I could see it coming and I thought, you know what this is this is it i think this is finally the nail in the coffin for us i think this will be the moment that we 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 completely crash and oh, josh that must be so hard yeah it was rough but you know what <laughs> there was a part of me it'll be a relief because it was yeah. just it has been seven years of just pouring money and time into it we haven't taken a holiday in seven years I live in one of the most beautiful parts of the country, and honestly, I I hardly know anything about the local tourist stuff here. We never go to the beach. We never go and do the beautiful things that you can do around here. Our social lives have been massively impacted, and still is. Like we we have some great friends around here who just never see us because we just constantly because we can't afford to pay for the labor to actually get ourselves off the farm. Yeah. And so from that point of view, I was like, do you know what, if everything fails, because I, I, when, I, when we set out on this journey, I was like, worst case scenario is we fail and I'll go back and get a job. You know, that's the worst case scenario is I end up back in an office. And I was ready to do that. Um, and I had this conversation. I speak a lot with my father-in-law, who's really great. And he's, he's a really wise guy and, um, and my father in, in, um, in, in Cape who lives in Cape Town. And I had a lot of conversations with them about it. And I was like, I, I was speaking to my father-in-law and I was like, I'm just going to, my last hope is we had actually been monetized on YouTube, not by accident, but like I hadn't set our, I, our YouTube channel had a few random videos on it. Yeah. But some, there was another YouTuber who did a video about our farm and as and that got like millions of views and as a result people went and found okay. our channel on youtube subscribed to it and so i had had this email from youtube saying you've been monetized you just need to register and stuff and i ignored it because i was too busy with the farm stuff to do anything about it and when it got to this point where the whole thing was going to collapse i thought Josh, you idiot. Maybe if you had <laughs> spent a bit of time working on YouTube, you could have started earning an income from content production on YouTube because so many people would love to be monetized and have that opportunity yeah. and you've not used it. So that how to fail at farming was like my last attempt to like sort of try and earn some money because I thought, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll actually document the process of going bankrupt and then I'll talk about what actually went wrong and maybe I'll earn a bit of money on YouTube. But it was really just, I had no plan at that point to do a crowdfunder. That was not the plan originally. Um, my plan was literally just see, see what I can do on YouTube. And this is literally because part of my frustration was that if you look on YouTube at alternative permaculture regenerative agriculture a lot of the stuff there's a lot of inspirational content out there about how you can farm and you can do it and it's all you need to do is do these things be regenerative and and, and there's a lot of myths in that space about um how to do it i think and that a lot of that is what motivated me and how what how mm. we started and i thought but there's nobody really talking about the mistakes um yeah. pitfalls in trying to do what we're doing and so i thought well do you know what that's another niche that's actually a gap that needs to be filled there's somebody being really honest about the fact that i've got this farm and do you know what i'm not making money from 
a book or a YouTube channel or something else that's actually supporting the farm primarily. I am purely trying to do food production here. Um, and there's challenges that come with that. So, so I thought that that was the motivation um, behind the, the How to Fail Farming series. And then what happened was after I released part one, um, I, got, I got a lot of people who were just really like supportive and really frustrated that they couldn't help. Okay. And what I didn't realize, you know, someone else had already previously said to me, why don't you do a crowd? And I was like, no, 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 I don't, you know, that's not what our goal is. We don't want to take free money. And, uh, and I also said, you know, I don't have that many followers. I had like, you know, right now we've got 2000 followers on Instagram and stuff. And I was like, I don't really think we're going to manage to do much on, you know, crowdfunding and it's not my plan. So I had had that recommendation in the past, but after doing part one of how to fail at farming, I was amazed actually at what, who popped up. People just mm -hmm. come out of the woodworks and that people are just like, there are so many people out there who just really wanted to see us keep going. And people started saying, do a GoFundMe, you know, do a, we ended up using Indiegogo in the end, but they, this just, they were saying like, I would donate, I would like to help. And then my best friend, one of my best friends from South Africa called me up um, as soon as he saw the video pop up and he was like, you've got to do a crowdfunding campaign. Like you cannot. And, and I was kind of arguing against him and he said, look, you cannot, you've been at this for seven years. We need mm. more of this. You cannot just let it all, uh, you can't just give up. So uh, Abby and I were really hesitant, but we decided, you know what, we're going to do a crowdfunding campaign and, and, uh, and Abby did some artwork. Yeah. Cause, because this is the thing is because yeah, Abby's an amazing artist and this is, this is again, so it's utilizing another skill that you both have. Um, as part of the overall whole yes yeah and so we so we sold some some prints abby did some lino cut prints of ducks uh she did some also some computer-based uh illustrations of ducks and we sold those but do you know what there were quite a few people who were literally like they refused to take anything because they wanted just to give us the money it's not why they were doing it mm. they didn't want us to have to because they could see it was going to generate work for us to be to to put together this artwork and there's a lot of people who just donated and said i i don't want you to spend any more time for on me i just want to give you some money and we were just like absolutely amazed we raised as you said in the intro we raised eight thousand on the um indiegogo campaign but there was also some people i mean who came directly to us and for whatever reason they didn't want to go through Indiegogo and they literally there's a guy in America who just contacted us out of the blue and said I want to send you a check and he just sent us a check and post so we raised over 10,000 pounds in total and yeah so it, it was it wasn't part of the plan but it turned out to be an incredible an incredible thing really we yeah. wouldn't be any any longer we definitely would not be here any longer if it wasn't for that yeah i'm um, I'm, I'm conscious of time but there, there are two things i want to follow on from this the first is i mean that firstly congratulations <laughs> and, and that is amazing to have raised to raise that much in such a short amount of time and I'm, I'm so thrilled that it managed to carry carry you through certainly the winter how does this add into that horrible world called horrible word called sustainability how do you then take that and ensure that the next 12 months that you're not in 12 months time, you're not on the same issue, same in, in the same boat? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, financial, you mean financial sustainability. Financial really, yeah. sustainability, yeah. The campaign we did for the crowdfunder was saying, look, we basically, we were really honest about the fact that our business is not, our farm business was not resilient enough. And like, you know, we could have some money to help us keep going sort of what's the point you know what's the point in just in just sort of keeping us uh, on life support for another three or four or five or six months um you know that we, we we needed to reinvent the business and we actually shot for in the crowdfunder we shot for uh a, you know we needed a minimum of i think i said in the campaign we needed a minimum of five grand to keep going to get through the winter and that we would problem solve from there. Um, but we also pitched a bigger vision, which was quite a lot of money. And it was £70,000 to essentially try to remove, take ourselves off 
soy uh, um, soy based feed and um, I'm really excited about the what the the how things are evolving um, around insect production for poultry um, and so I wanted to get I wanted to get the business onto insect production to yep. feed the ducks um, and and what that would mean is we'd be able to take local food waste feed it to insects, grow the insects on, feed that to ducks. But the problem, the reason why that's so expensive is because our farm has no infrastructure on it, um, really. We don't have mains electric, we don't have a yard, we don't have a barn, we don't have a, we have one piece of concrete which is under our feed bin, but we don't have a nice hard surface anywhere for machinery or, so that's why, you know, we, to do that, we needed a much larger sum of money. And at that time, you know, I was, I was kind of, you know, all bets were off as to what happened next. And I was thinking big and about the vision for the farm. And I was like, well, if the crowdfunding campaign does that well, this is what we would do. It didn't do that well, but it, it did better than I, 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 I actually didn't expect it to, to get up to that figure, but I also didn't expect it to get to 10,000 pounds. So <laughs> as a result, so we're not yet able to go and do the insect production. That is my dream for the future. Mm. But uh, the other part of my pitch in that crowdfunding campaign was that um, we, the the next business idea that we've got is to get into compost production, specifically vermicompost um, and uh, breeding and producing worms, and and so that is now our big focus now because the money that we've gotten has has given us enough of a runway and investments to actually kickstart. Um, that compost business and 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 that is potentially where we're going to get cash flow from and become more financially resilient moving forward and hopefully we can move towards the, the insect production in the future so so yeah now the business is now looking towards producing compost and you know just circling back to what i was talking about in regards to the ducks and the negative points of the ducks in terms of how much litter they produce and um you know how much labor it is involved in spreading that uh, bedding for them and, yeah. and mucking out the house that is now our opportunity so that yeah. was a problem. I, I was gonna say it's amazing isn't it how there's I mean, I've grown to believe that there are always two ways of seeing everything. Yes. And sometimes when you just flip something on its head, it might, nine times out of 10, this might not work. But sometimes there is an opportunity where you've got a challenge. That thing, that's a great example. Yes. And it, you know, it takes jobs that we had to do already. You know, we had to muck out. We had to spread that bedding. We had to spread a lot of bedding. We had to buy the bedding. Um, so those are jobs we have to do already, but with a little bit of planning and reorganization of things, we can turn that into a super high quality uh, organic fertilizer. Uh, in the in the introduction, you you mentioned that we had a market garden, and we've never been market gardeners, but we have done veg production, and we have been we have referred to it as a market garden in the past, and been producing veg. But yeah, um, we in the process of failing in the process of uh, potentially going bankrupt i it made me realize that we needed to focus our activity and our energy on the farm and so that is why we have massively scaled down our flock of sheep and we have stopped doing uh, any veg production on the farm at all you know the most common myth out there that i would like to that my in my opinion is actually not true is that stacking enterprises is how you become profitable um and kind of the smaller you are as a farm the more you need to diversify and stack your enterprises and i actually my belief my theory is is that it's the opposite the larger your farm is the more important it is to stack enterprises because you can actually reach an economy of scale on each one of those Mm. but when you are small and when it is just you and your wife or like you and your partner running a farm trying to diversify so much uh, or stack enterprises so much is a recipe. I think it's a recipe for disaster. I think it's the wrong advice personally. Like I think there are um, some circumstances where it might work, but so what we're doing, so my theory is, and it's just a theory at this point is that if you are a really small producer, it's better to specialize and be more circular in that business 
than it is to sort of stack multiple different farm enterprises on top of one another. Um, so in our case, we are looking to specialize, focus more on the duck business and make it more circular, produce that compost and produce the worms. Um, you know, you could say we're stacking enterprises because we got compost and worms and ducks, but they are all directly related. There is, you know, when I do one task for the ducks, it's directly benefiting the worms and it's a very, t- it's quite a tight system. So we're no longer doing veg production. We're no longer really doing sheep. I keep the sheep because I love the sheep and I love the genetics we've got. Um, we've got the blueberry patch, uh, which is, you know, it's fruit production, but for reasons which we probably don't have time to get into now, it's not going to be efficient or profitable. We're not going to benefit from economies of scale there. And so really the the blueberry business is, the blueberry patch is actually more for the ducks than it is anything else. Okay. We have got a little Airbnb on the farm now, and that allows people to do pick your own in the blueberry patch. But as a commercial venture, the blueberry patch, unless we were doing it at much bigger scale and really focusing on it, it's not going to be a commercially viable um, thing for us. So, you know, some people get frustrated with me when I say this in the regenerative permaculture space, they get annoyed. Um, what I'm not saying is that we don't want diversity on the farm. We want lots of trees. We want lots of wildlife. We want to increase biodiversity. We want lots of biological diversity on the farm. But in terms of our business, my feeling is that we want more focus, more specialization, and more circularity in that. So by recycling the manure and the waste of the ducks, for example, and really focusing on getting that um, getting that honed in. Because what I've realized is that like there is a whole lifetime of learnings on the duck egg business and keeping ducks that we could spend you know, many lifetimes on. So how are we meant to be good at market gardening, keeping sheep, keeping ducks, uh, managing blueberries? Like we can't, you know, we can't do all that stuff. So diversity on farms is great, but be careful in terms of the commercial side of things, not to spread yourself too thin. I want to reflect on failure itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm really interested to hear how you see failure because Honestly, I I admire you and Abby so much for your resilience, and uh, I mean I remember we talked we talked about this personally at um, the Just Farmers Workshop as well. I had a pretty rough year last year as well, um, and in the past, I perhaps perceived failure in a very negative way, and I think this is quite common. And uh, I see I see a, a lot of other people who do this as well. You, you try a lot of things, you you do a lot of different things. And ultimately, if you put yourself out there with something, so not everything's going to go going to go the way that you perhaps expect, and that's a key word. It's going to go. But again, going back to this idea that there are two ways of seeing everything, yeah, there are learning points in failure. If you never fail in inverted commas, you yeah. never learn. And I think what again, what I admire you guys so much for is that you are taking those learning points and think, okay, we're coming up against a challenge here. What are we going to do about it? So yeah. my question is, how do you perceive failure? Yeah, yeah, that's a good, really good question because when I did that uh, YouTube series, quite a few people were like, you know, Josh, you haven't failed, and and I think they they got the I don't know if they got the impression that I was sort of I don't know not feeling sorry for ourselves, but sort of being really harsh on ourselves. Um, I'm not afraid of failure. Like, and, and I'm, I think it's funny. It's an F word. It's quite a triggering word. Yeah. People don't like it. Um, but I think it's really important to talk about like what's gone wrong and like what you shouldn't do, you know, like the whole like YouTube space or like sort of online space about farming is like what you should do. And I, you know, in our case, we actually went and tried to do those things, and there were certain things that really didn't work. I think it's important just to be honest and share what didn't work. Ultimately, I don't think that we are failures or that we failed. I think being quite honest, I'm really proud of what we've achieved and what we've done. But it's also really important just to acknowledge the mistakes that you've made and what you could have done better. 
um, because that way other people get to learn. Yeah, how how do I see failure? I mean, uh, I I'm a big fan. I actually just posted a story on our Instagram account recently. There's a little book that I've got. Um, it's sort of a book about stoicism, and I really like it. And the 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 name of the book is the obstacle is the way. Um, and you know, it comes back to this idea of of looking at some of the less profitable parts of the duck egg enterprise, like the manure, for for example, and flipping that on its head and turning it into an opportunity. And so, I think that yeah, failure is a really important part of any um, entrepreneurial journey. I don't think there's been any successful entrepreneurs that haven't failed along the yeah, way, completely. made mistakes, shall we say. But, you know, I chose the term because it's an alliteration, fail at farming, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a triggering word. It's, it's, um, it grabs people's attention. But I think it's important to, like, to just be what I wanted to be in that, in that YouTube series was just brutally honest and just, like, straightforward. Like, uh, because we had, because we had uh, done so much on social media you know, over the years that just made our lives look idyllic, you know, because ultimately we were always posting the good pictures on social media. And I think there are so many people who are just absolutely so surprised um, by the fact that we, that, that we were struggling um, because they had seen the surface of it all on social media. Absolutely. This is is a big, it's a big issue. It's a really big big issue generally. You know, it's not like we were setting out to hide anything. We were just like, well, we've got a brand and a farm. Why would we, you know, why would I, why would I post a picture of a dead sheep? I'm, I'm just going to get, you know, sheep lying dead in the field or something. You know, obviously we've had lots of challenges on the farm. As, um, but why, why would I do that? I mean, it, it, it wasn't that we were setting out to hide anything about the farm it was just it's just naturally what happens when you're doing social media you're posting all the good stuff there are a bunch of people to be honest with you, you just didn't believe that we were actually failing like w- what i mean by that is i had a number of people contact me some really like some close friends and um, mentors of mine being like but josh this was just a marketing thing right like you guys are totally fine you just you're doing this because it's it's a this is your plan right <laughs> um just tell me straight because they know me very well. And I was like, no, seriously, this we are. About to and they, a lot of people just don't believe it. They look at the farm and what we're doing and they think we are minted and doing really well. You know, and it's just, it's not the case. Yeah. I, no, fascinating. I, I think generally, I mean, we could go off on a massive tangent here, but I think, I think again, that relates to how farming and farmers are perceived. There's a big, issue i think of perception when it comes to certainly when it comes to farming commerce actually and it's partly partly our, our job to break through this um but w- when the public think about farming at large and this goes right the way back to um what you're told when you're young how you sort of or what you're not told when you're young um I was having this conversation on on the last episode actually with with luke about farming in, in schools mm. um, and farming education but yeah there is this perception of who a farmer is what a farmer does this idyllic rural lifestyle and yeah don't get me wrong there are some amazing pluses there are some amazing pluses and there's huge diversity amongst the industry as well um there are people who do well there are people who, who are struggling um at any time and, and that's the same in in any in any line and in, in any sort of enterprise and any business but this mm. this sense of perception i think is it's a massive issue and i think all we need to do is just as i think you've done brilliantly is just tell your story the way it is and just be honest to yourself in the way you're telling that story simple or maybe not i i I must i must raise another point actually because um you know like um speaking to family and friends and stuff they they can't understand they're like but if farming is so unprofitable then how are you know how are all these farmers around like surely people are making money farming and obviously there are some very skilled farmers out there who are probably making money i imagine but like on the whole my realization has been that they're just making it work through sheer grit and determination most farmers are just making it work and by that i mean you know they're running they've got multiple jobs they've they've you know they they are 
working all hours of the day and they are burning the candle at every end and they are just making it work. And I've just got so much respect for the farming community on all ends of the spectrum from conventional all the way to the other end. Um, and like, because they are the, mo the most hardworking and determined people that I've, that I've met. I don't think people realize out in the non-farming community, like the, like how much farmers sacrifice for this life to be able to stand out in the field on a sunny day. There's a lot of sacrifice behind that. One other thing I, I just remembered, I wanted to say in regards to your um, question, how I define or how I see failure. Mm. Uh, one of the important points to make is that we specifically had this goal to make a hundred percent of our living full-time on the farm on 10 acres producing food that was our really what i now know a really unrealistic goal to yeah begin. absolutely this is so key yeah, yeah. to set and the expectation i was told i was told when i arrived that it is impossible josh you will not you will not earn a living on 10 acres producing food just not possible and i was told by two different farmers on two different occasions um there's a common saying around here they arrive in their fancy cars and they leave on their bicycles. And man, that was nearly true for us. Like, you know, we, without the support of people in that crowdfunding campaign, that would have been us. And it's, I think what we've realized now is that it was unrealistic to expect to be able to do this, especially with no experience or background in farming. It was completely unrealistic. And so, you know, now we do have a little Airbnb on the farm, uh, one shepherd's hut. and I consider, I actually consider the compost business somewhat non-agricultural. Um, you know, when I ultimately, when I sell that compost, I have to charge VAT on it. And so by, you know, strictly definition wise, I think that would be classed as non-agricultural. It's as close as I can get to something that okay. I feel is agricultural that technically isn't agricultural. <laughs> it's not food. You can't eat it. So, um, but that is specifically where we did fail at our objective. In the long term, hopefully we'll be financially okay, uh, but, you know, we'll be looking for alternative sources of income to support the farm, which is what I think so many farmers have to do. Yeah. Josh, it's been, it's been so great talking to you, uh, but we're going to wrap things up now. Um, I've, I've got the the questions which i ask everyone at the end of the show um the first is josh your message for the public what is it support farmers just support farmers of all um types i've i've got so much respect for the convert you know we came into this with the all the ideals of being 100 percent organic regenerative and all i can say is we just need every single farmer that we've got whether they're conventional or not we need more farmers and more young farmers so support your farmers in whatever way you can and complain to the supermarket about the egg prices yo and will be happy you've said that yes um, and uh your message for farmers hang in there like and just hats off to all of you guys who've been doing this for so many generations like this is i'm the first first generation in our family although my afrikaans background a few generations ago we would have had farmers in the family but yeah, hats off to all of you guys for surviving so well and um, hang in there and make sure you, I don't know, don't hide, don't hide how much you're struggling. You know, talk about it. Mental health is really tough in, in the farming sector. I think it's the worst in, of all industries. And I think it's really important for all farmers just to, just to come out and say when they are struggling and talk to people about it because, um, you'll be amazed at the support that exists out there for you. Uh, I was, um, yeah, hang in there. Brilliant. And, uh, yeah, finally, uh, how do people follow you? Um, obviously they can go to your YouTube uh, channel as well, which I highly recommend. Yeah. At, at Park Carrig. Um, that's Park Carrig with C's P A R C C A W -R, R E G. Um, and, uh, we're on YouTube, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're on TikTok. We're on, not really. <laughs> but, really. Uh, we, we've just tried to do all of it on YouTube. We will just be continuing to share the journey of trying to make a living on our 10 acres. And so if you're interested, um, definitely subscribe to us on YouTube and follow along. 
Uh, our, our future is by no means certain. You know, we are still very much in dangerous waters and we're taking every day as it comes. Yeah, good luck from me to both you and Abby. Yeah, I hope that your year ahead isn't quite as bumpy as last year, but like you say, lots of challenges ahead. Um, but this has been a real lesson in resilience this episode. So thank you so much for telling your story. Thanks, Ben. And thanks for all you're doing and, uh, and, and talking to farmers and spreading the word. Thank you. Oh. Thanks, Josh. That is it for today. Um, If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show um, wherever you're listening. Please also do leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I can't tell you how much difference that makes in helping more people uh, know about the podcast. Next week, I will be in Suffolk. Um, I am visiting Sarah Langford on her farm. I'm sure that many of you uh, will know Sarah's book released last year called Rooted. Um, and on the Rural Business Focus podcast this week, I'm talking about networking with Millie Fife. Um, if you haven't already discovered Rural Business Focus, please do go over and give that a listen wherever you're listening to this um, podcast. It's designed to encourage to help anyone who runs a rural business of any type um, to be their very best. And we've got episodes on everything from skill sessions to interviews with industry leaders and some mindset and motivation episodes too. That's the general idea behind it. Uh, please see the show notes for more information and for any links mentioned today, along with more information about Park Carrig. For now, though, I'm Ben Eagle. This has been Meet the Farmers. Thank you very much for joining us and I hope you have a great week.